Dear Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your mercies and your graces towards us once again. Thank you because you, you are with us, you are good, you make us part of your family, and uh, you give us uh, brothers and sisters in Christ uh, in our church at Miracle uh, Springs. We thank you for your word and for Ephesians and for the, the privilege that we have today to look into a, a prayer that is uh, profound and we pray for your help to understand it, comprehend more of the love of God, your love in Christ and that we may be changed, that we may grow and that we may be praying more like uh, Paul. Amen. Amen. Welcome. All right, so we are turning back to Ephesians chapter 3, and we're going to read uh, verse 14 through 21. Verses 14 through 21. Ephesians 3. Verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So the title of this uh, uh, teaching is the following. I just entitled it A Prayer for Communion with the Trinity. So we are going to see this passage is all about a prayer that's uh, asking God for communion with all three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the outline following the text, we, are, we will see that in verses... Uh, 14 and 15, there is an introduction to the prayer, and he gives the reason for the prayer. And then, in verse uh, 16, we will see communion with the Spirit. In verses 17 through 19a, the beginning of the verse, we'll see communion with Christ. And then in uh, verse 19, the end of the verse, we will see communion with God the Father. And finally, there is a conclusion to the prayer with the doxology. There is an introduction with the rationale, the communion with the three members of the Trinity, and then a conclusion with the doxology. That is a praise, a praise to God. So we start with the uh, introduction to the prayer, the reason. So it says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. I don't know if you remember, but uh, Pastor Grady, uh, last time, he spent about uh, 10 minutes take, talking to us about uh, um, the, the, the reason that is mentioned in Ephesians 3.1, where it says, for this reason, I, Paul, and then he talks about all kinds of things, and then uh, we were asking, what is this reason? And Pastor Grady told us that um, he gave us a, a handout with uh, some arrows, and he said that the reason is picked up back in verse um, 14, which is what we have here. And uh, he did say that he spent quite a bit of time studying this, and uh, it just turned out to be exactly the same for me, right? I, I had to spend a lot of time just trying to figure out, uh, because every time you study the Bible, you have to just lay the, the facts on the floor, on the table, and just re-examine, is it what you think it is? And uh, so anyways, I had to spend a lot of time. And the reason why we want to spend time is that he says, I'm praying for a reason. And so we need to find out what is that, because it's going to inform us of, 
about the prayer and the insights and how it connects to the prayer. And uh, because every scripture is profitable, we should understand what is the reason. But it turns out it's quite challenging to understand this reason. Um, I probably spent a third of my time just uh, looking at this <laughs> because it does impact what we understand uh, quite a bit. So let's uh, look into this. The passage looks like this. I'm going to make a diagram so you can see what's the, what's the flow. So there is chapter 2. And chapter 2 talks about the household of God at the end. <coughs> okay. And then there is chapter 3. And I'm, I'm going to divide it into uh, two sections. So there is 3-1 that says, for this reason. And then it goes all the way to 13. And then you have what we are studying today, which is 314 through 21. And then he says, for this reason. And so the question is, what is the reason? And they are, I came up with three possibilities as I studied the fresh. The first possibility is that the reason immediately follows what he says in verse 14. So he would say, I'm praying for this reason. And then he prays and he, he explains what he's praying for, what he's praying for. And uh, the, the Greek uh, for, for these two terms, those are two terms in the Greek. And they occur in Titus 1.5. And in Titus 1.5, Paul says, For this reason, same Greek terms, I left you in Crete, talking to Timothy, so that you may put in order what, what is not ordered and appoint elders. So he's saying, Titus, I left you in Crete. For this reason, I left you in Crete, so that you would appoint elders in the churches. And so therefore, in that case, the reason follows the statement. So one possibility is that the reason why he prays is all the content of the prayer. Now that's possible. The problem is that here, like Pastor Grady said last week, he says, for this reason, and then there is no, no connection to the reason yet. So in here he says, for this reason, he does something. What does he do? That's right. For this reason, I pray. Right? So he's saying, I pray for this reason. In Titus, it says, for this reason, I left you in Crete. So the action is, I left you in Crete. And the reason is, you, play, you appoint elders. So the problem is that here, in 3.1, there's no verb. He doesn't say, for this reason, I was made an apostle. He doesn't say that. He says, for this reason, and then he talks about the mystery of the gospel for like 10 plus verses. And so if you say that the reason follows, there is no explanation for what happened in 3.1. Okay, the second, the second way to see the reason is that it's not that the reason is following, but that the reason precedes verse 14, right? So the most natural way to see it would be, okay, so the reason must be mentioned in verse 13. And what is verse 13 saying? He, verse 13 is saying that they were discouraged, that they were fainting, depending on your translation, that they were losing heart because he was in jail. So they were like, wow, Paul is in jail. They were sad. And so he's saying, for this reason, I pray for you. So that would be the second view, right? The reason would be he's praying because they are discouraged. And so that will be a prayer for encouragement. But we still have uh, the, the problem that we're not explaining verse 1. But it does make sense because if you read the prayer, he says, For this reason I bow my knee before the Father. And then it says that you may be strengthened in the Holy Spirit in your, in your being. So you're discouraged and you get strength. That makes sense. But it still doesn't explain the reason he mentioned earlier. And so I came to the conclusion that uh, the best view is what Pastor Grady explained last week, also the view that MacArthur and Alistair Begg and others take. And that is that the reason is actually not immediately following. It's not immediately preceding in verse 13, but it's actually all the way back to chapter 2. And so in other words, Paul is talking about the family of God. 
And then he says, you are part of the family of God. And he says, for this reason, which he just mentioned, you being part of the family of God. And then he says, I, Paul, an apostle of the gospel. And then he starts to explain the gospel and the mystery. He kind of wants to fill us in and explain what the gospel is. And then he picks up in verse 14. So I was saying, for this reason, and then he prays. So that's the view. And so how can we uh, see that this is the, the, the view? What would be against that view is that it seems a little bit odd that for like, he would say for this reason and then for 12 verses, you know, he doesn't explain the, the reason, he doesn't go forward. And then it just picks up later. But on the other hand, we know uh, reading Ephesians that it's not uncommon for Paul to make like a very long sentence and on and on and go on and on. So he is kind of long-winded. So that's not too surprising. And, uh, and then the, the other facts are that there are amazing parallels between here and there. If indeed the reason all goes all the way back here, there must be some connections between the two, right? And so look at it with me. Yes. Oh, I was going to say, so like, like with the Mark and Sandwich, like where, they, where he starts talking about something and then he fills people in a little bit about another stretch, just a way of talking, right? Like they, That's right. They, 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 you get in discussion and then try to piece some pieces together that people aren't picking up on, right. but then conclude with where you started the thing anyway. So yeah. I think that's kind of what he's doing here. Yeah? yeah, exactly. So we do it a lot, right? But uh, it's not so common in the scriptures. I, I haven't seen it, but of course, you know, uh, that doesn't mean that it, it's not possible. So, um, and also, yeah. like sometimes it's like because we have the verses that kind of like skew us, you know, because we like, oh, 12 verses, that's so long. But imagine if it's just a letter, a discussion, or a speech. Yeah, then you it goes fast. It's just yeah. 30 seconds, and then he just goes back to what he was, so saying. was saying. So it's fine. Reason, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but I actually found that uh, there, are, there, are, there are more reasons for that. So, so instead of being, quote unquote, just a prayer for discouraged Christians, you are discouraged, so I pray for strength. It is a prayer for all the Christian life, which includes discouragement and suffering, but is not limited to that. And that would make sense because the prayer, as we are about to see, it's a prayer for communion with God. And so we don't pray for communion with God just when things are tough. We pray for communion with God all the time, right? Um, now, look at this. Uh, look at the parallels between the two sections. In Ephesians 2.20, it says we are members of God's household, which is to say we are members of his family. And then when you look at 314, it says, I pray to whom? To the father. That implies the family. And then it says, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. So you see the connection there. It's exactly the same theme that he left off in 220. Then the second parallel that I... I saw is that there is the Trinity. So in the prayer, like I indicated, as I indicated in the outline, <coughs> he talks about being strengthened in the spirit, spirit, and then he says to be uh, having Christ dwell in your heart, and then he says that you will have all the fullness of God. So that's the Trinity. And then if you look at Ephesians 20, 220, he talks about the household of God. And then he continues and he says that you will be a holy temple of the Lord. That's the Lord Jesus. And then he says eventually that you will be a dwelling place for God in the spirit. So you see the Trinity in the reversed chiasm. Where he presents the three and then he presents the three again in the reverse order. So clearly there is, there is a parallel. And look at verse 18, 218. It says, for through him that is Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So that really tells me that he's talking about the same thing and he picks up later and he elaborates on that. And then the final reason that I think really makes this view the most likely one is that in 3.18 he says, uh, he prays so that we may, be, we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. See, he's not just talking about the Ephesian Christians who were suffering, he's talking, he's making a prayer for all, all the saints, all the saints. So I think all in all, this is the view that best explains the, the reason. And uh, in, in a nutshell, what, what, uh, what this is uh, telling us is that Paul is praying for the Ephesian Christians to have communion with the triune God because they are members of his family. So he's saying, because you're members of God's family, this is what is possible for you. This is what you should strive for. Because of your identity, then you can have this practice.
So that being said, now we continue to the I bow my knees before the Father. So a question and open discussion for all of you. What is the attitude of Paul in prayer that we can see here? Submission. Submission. Surrender. Surrender. He says, I bow my knees. So he is picturing being physically on your knees where you acknowledge that there is someone with the honor and an authority and who is greater than yourself. Something else? Do you guys remember an example in the Bible where this humility and this submission is uh, exemplified? Jesus? When Christ Right. What about a person beyond uh, Jesus? Do you remember the, the publican when he was praying? Uh, he was beating his chest. The text says that uh, there's the Pharisee and uh, he's like standing tall and uh, he is speaking loud and he's saying, I'm not like those people and and he's, he's not recognized. Uh, he's not justified. And then there's the publican who is also standing. So it's really not about being on your knees. You could be on your knees and have a heart full of sin. You could be standing up and be in the right relationship with God. So he, he's standing uh, in that case, uh, but it says he does not dare to lift up his eyes. And then he's beating his heart. And he says, I don't deserve anything. And, um, and he's justified. So this attitude. Uh, I did track a little bit the, the kneeling part in the book of Acts with uh, Paul. So can someone please read for us Acts 20, 36? And then someone else, 21. Um, actually, I will read this one. So 2036. This is Paul with the Christians of Ephesus. The last time he sees them. Yes, and when? And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. All right, so we see that um, Paul is kneeling frequently. And in 21, if you turn the page, um, it's at the beginning of the passage. I don't remember the verse, uh, maybe about verse 7. Uh, they were entire, and then it says, when our days were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside of the city and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed. And then there's this beautiful psalm, Psalm 95, 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. So, yes. What was the second Acts verse? Uh, it's in 21. 21 5. It's 21.5. 21.5, thank you. So having said that the heart is important, just looking at the examples we see in the scriptures and um, the fact that when we do, we, we have actions, it influences what we think. It kind of goes uh, hand, uh, um, hand in hand. I would venture to say that uh, it should never be said of us that we never physically kneel before God. We should just kneel, right? Sometimes, you just kneel before God and you pray. Uh, I think uh, I think this says something of us if we never kneel. So I will say that. A question? Yes. When you just mentioned, it's not about the getting down right. and kneeling. Right. It's more about the heart of yep. where you're at. So I mean, right. I, I, yeah, it is, it is the heart, and still we see frequently in the scripture people kneeling before God to pray, so yeah, no it, it looks like, uh, right, naturally if the heart is in this kneeling position, then it will translate in, in the kneeling physically. Yeah. Uh, although, like I said, uh, this, this is not a, a rule, but it does look like an example to follow. So, 
I will say that and leave it there for your meditation. Another, um, another thing of humility that reminded me of the scriptures was the uh, centurion, when the centurion um, sent his servants to Jesus, uh-huh. there were some of the Pharisees or whoever of that place saying, you know, the centurion has built us a synagogue and he's worthy of your healing, but then he, but he comes and turns and says otherwise. I'm not worthy of your healing. I have authority over other people just like you have authority. Right. Just say the word and we'll be done. Right, definitely. So then it talks about, I bow my knee before the Father. So God is the Father of whom exactly? And uh, any comments on that? What do you think? What's that? Yeah, so when it says that God is, uh, is the Father, He's the Father of uh, who exactly? So, you know, this is basically where I was going, right? Is that God is the maker, but the Bible, um, when it uses that term, specifically in the New Testament, it talks about God being the Father of the believers. And uh, so, with that in mind, let's look at John 8, and uh, we will see the contrast between Christians who have God for their father, and then non-Christians who have for father the devil. Uh, John 8, 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came forth from God, and I'm here, for I have not even come on my own, but he sent me. 8.43, why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. And then it continues. And uh, the same author in 1 John 3.10 says, By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother or sister. So he's basically saying this, by love you will be able to distinguish between the, the children of God, the people who, have, who can bow before the Father, and then the people who are the children of the devil and who want to do his will. And of course it's going to tie with our text because it will talk about love quite, quite a bit. So he bows the knee before the Father. And then it says, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. At first, I kind of uh, um, did not pay too much attention to this, uh, the family piece and the naming piece. But it's quite significant. So the family, that can be also translated the whole family. So you have the two things where it's saying that everywhere in heaven where saints from all, the, all ages have um, who have passed away are, and then on the earth, everywhere, we are all part of one family, regardless of all the ethnic groups, Jews and Gentiles, which is of course the theme of the book. We are all being made one new man, we are all part of the family of God, and we are all under, under Him, this one family of God. And then it says, is named. So we see here, surprisingly perhaps, but we see it actually, the absolute sovereignty of God over salvation. The reason is that it's, it's in the passive uh, voice. It says, uh, from whom every family is named, or it's also translated, has received the name, or uh, derives its name. And it's, again, it's in the past tense. It's not something we do. I don't by whatever I do, get to name myself or be part of the family of God. It's an adoption process. It really starts with God. And uh, we have an illustration of this uh, word, of the usage in Luke 6.13, when Jesus began his ministry and, quote, when it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. So Jesus started his ministry, and he says, I'm calling you, I'm choosing you, and I'm going to call you the apostles. And in the, in the very same way, we are called, we are chosen, and we are named the children of God, 
all by the sovereign will and active naming of the Father, and that's all of Him. That's what He does. That's the sovereign salvation of the Father. So that was the introduction. We saw that the reason was Paul is praying because we are part of God's family, and he's praying to the Father. He has a posture of humility, uh, and he is uh, letting us know that we are all part of the family of God because of God's, God's sovereign choice. And then secondly, we see the communion with the Spirit in verse 16. So he bows his knee, his knees before the Father, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. So I'd like for you to participate here. Um, what is Paul asking God? And specifically, if you look at the verse and try to be a bit more specific, what is he asking exactly? Spiritual strength. Here you go. Right? He says that you be strengthened with power through his spirit. So what does that imply? That without God we're weak. Yeah. We are weak. You feel like you're weak? Yeah. I do. Like, wow, I am weak. I am very weak. And then the person who thinks, I'm not weak, I'm strong. What are you talking about? They don't have a clue. They don't even recognize what's actually happening. What is the actual need? And uh, it says, through his spirit. So... There is this statement in the book of Zechariah, I just remember it, it says, it is not by power, it is not by strength, but it is by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. We are weak people. That's who we are. And, and where is this strength being applied? Huh? <coughs> Yeah, that's true, but uh, it's not specific enough in that particular case. What is the text saying? In our inner being. That's right. So, it's not talking about physical strength, right? So this prayer is only valid when you are like young and when you get old and it's not for you. <laughs> right? He's asking for spiritual strength in our inner being. And so, again, that means that um, we need strengthening in our soul, in our in, in, a, in our will and everything. There's this uh, verse in Philippians, um, you know, people quote it and it says, um, work out your salvation uh, with fear and trembling. And they say, See, you gotta lose it. You better fear and tremble and work at your salvation. See what the next verse says, for it is God who is at work in you, both for the doing and the will. So we don't work out in fear of losing salvation. We work out because he is active in us to give us the actions and the desire. And he worked it in, so we work it out. So th again, the point is, if it wasn't for God being active in us, we would, we would be nowhere. A couple verses that are going to uh, help us to meditate on that a little bit more. 2 Corinthians 12.9. Can someone read for us, please, Second Corinthians twelve nine? Yes, but he said to me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast uh, yeah, therefore I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Thank you. So you see the power is connected there, and there's the weakness that of course uh, connects with the strength. 
And he says um, that he's weak. And uh, unless you see yourself like that, you'll have no power from Christ. You think you're strong? So why are you going to run to God and ask for strength from the Spirit? You don't need anything, do you? But if you recognize that you're weak, then you even just say, yep, yeah, that's, that's who I am. There's no hiding. This is the truth. But then the grace of God and the power of Christ, and in that case, the strengthening of the Holy Spirit is really going to be uh, sustaining us. So we did see that in Ephesians uh, 3.13, where he is talking just before the prayer, he recognizes that Christians were discouraged. And I, I did say that the prayer is for the whole Christian life, but that of course implies that it's also for the difficulty of the Christian life. And therefore, we do see that communion with the Spirit, communion with God, is what is going to help us when we are discouraged. It's not... Um, it is including the suffering. And that's why in 2 Corinthians 4, if you can turn to 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 18, we will see very similar uh, phrases that are going to tell us that this prayer, this strengthening in our inner being, it is definitely something we should focus on when we are discouraged. So 16, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, that is, my body is getting weaker and weaker and is going to die. Our inner self, or our inner being, like uh, Paul says in Ephesians 3, our inner being is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So what I wanted to highlight is again that he says when you're discouraged, you need to be strengthened in your inner being. And for me, that was very encouraging this week, in fact. So this prayer is not just for discouraged saints, but it certainly is for discouraged saints. And it talks about the power. Uh, so... Looking at the verse, and it's okay if we paraphrase, what is the measure and quality of that strengthening that God has for us? Just looking at it, how is it described and what does that mean? Ephesians, back to Ephesians 3.16. Okay. <laughs> I'll give you an example. Uh, Moses once, he was fighting a battle and he had to lift his hands, right? And uh, he was, he needed strength. He was exhausted. And so there were two of his uh, servants that helped hold his arms, right? Uh, that was strength. What is the question again? The question is, what is the measure of this strength? How is it uh, described? Is it something that can fade away, like uh, you know, two men helping Moses for a little while, and at some point they'll need help too? It's unbreakable. Unbreakable. And uh, someone else? Yeah, that's, that's good. So there is this... Uh, this uh, firm foundation and just back to the immediate context uh, he says according to the riches of his glory he may grant you so this is lavish this is lavish strengthening it's never going to run out it's just as extensive as the riches of the glory of god which is infinite that's encouraging it's encouraging he doesn't write that just uh, to add uh, uh, meaningless details he's trying to tell us that there is abundant supply. And then it talks about the power, the power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, on this particular note, um, I found two verses that would be complementing that thought well. There is a Romans 15.13. So in Romans 15.13 it says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. You see, this power of the Holy Spirit, it is amazing power. 
it says that, by the way, in uh, Ephesians uh, 1.19, it talks about the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So the Spirit of God, by his power, has resurrected Jesus Christ. And it says that the same power that was at work when Jesus was raised is at work in us. And it says it's immeasurably great. It says that it's according to the riches of the glory of God. And so that is really giving us some encouragement. Uh, we can have, we can have the fruit of the spirit, the hope provided by the spirit, the strength, and uh, we just need it every day because we are weak. And so that's the prayer. And uh, I was, uh, I was planning to talk about that a little later, but I'll kind of flash it already. You know, this prayer. If you just pause and you just perhaps remind yourself of when you read uh, uh, the letter in full or you read some other prayers. The truth is this prayer is just uh, uh, different from what we would typically pray. In fact, what's, uh, what's kind of remarkable, especially when it comes afterwards to the love, what says you have to understand the love, is that that's not a prayer we would pray typically. It's just different from what we think. And so much so that when you read it, at first you're like, it's not like you're shocked, like, wow, did you hear what he said? It's almost like it goes above our head. Yeah, strengthened by the Spirit. And then, so we don't understand. It means that we are somehow really not there yet. You know, it does not hit us by just a shock that, wow, this prayer is amazing. It's almost like we can forget it. Ten seconds later. And that, to me, what that means is that uh, I just don't understand as deeply as I should. I just don't know God as deeply as I should. That's the same thing when I read uh, the Bible and I'm reading a doctrinal section and I read it and I'm like, I don't really know what this is about. And I get some words here and there, but I just don't understand really what this is teaching. That's because I, I haven't really grasped and so therefore it kind of leaves me. Or maybe I'm reading a passage and there are a couple of verses that are, they, they are, I, I understand the next one, the previous one, but these ones, like, I have no clue what this is about. Again, it's because I, I'm not there yet. I'm just, I'm not mature enough to understand what it means or I'm, I'm missing something in my theology. And so sure enough, when it comes to a prayer like that and it's not like shocking me and I'm not like, wow, it's because I'm just not there, right? It's because there is something that needs to change. It's because I, I'm not like Paul. When I'm supposed to pray, I'm like, this is what I'm going to pray. This is the thing. So it's encouraging me to think about the right things and to, to understand that, wow, being strengthened by the Holy Spirit, that is amazingly important to just understand more and more the unknowable love of God. That's what I need to know more, right? And... Um, and I think uh, it, it just uh, is uh, really a, a good example and motivation for us to see, okay, that's where I would like to, to grow. I would like to meditate on that. So that at some point, I know this passage by heart and I just like, yes, this is what I need to pray for and I know why and I love that prayer. I don't just forget it 10 seconds later after the reading because it has really impacted me so much that now it's for life in, in my spiritual DNA. So, we see here that moving from verse 16 to 17, we move from the Holy Spirit who is leading us to Christ. The Holy Spirit is leading us to Christ. So we are going to be strengthened by the Holy Spirit so that, verse 17, that's the third part, communion with Christ, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And you know, by the way, when I, when I said like, that means I'm not yet there, it's actually a good thing that I see that. See, unless you see that there's something you don't know, you're never gonna learn it, right? I remember when I was a young Christian, uh, unfortunately I was in a, in, a, in a church where they were just not, actually there was no preaching. 
so they were just uh, casual teaching. And then later on, I was in a church where there was preaching, but you know, it was not very deep and expositional. So then if you stayed several years there, it would almost be as if every time you come, you're not learning anything new. And so people would leave and it would say like, yep, I knew that. And then there was literally like no insights. It was just, because if you're not gonna preach through the text, there's nothing you're gonna learn. You're just gonna say what you know. And you're gonna take a few verses to express what you know. But when I started to go to um, Grace Community Church, where uh, we were going through books of the Bible, then sure enough, you're going to learn a ton every single week. And if it's not necessarily a huge new doctrine you didn't know, you're going to learn that in that passage, this meant that. So you're going to learn every time. But the point was, if you are not placed in a situation where you can realize that, wow, there is so much I don't know, then you're not going to learn. So you have some people, they are in some places, and then for 20, 30 years, they just, they're not learning much. And then they are 50 years old and there are some basic things they can't even explain in the Bible. But, and they think they know, they know it all. I know. So it's a very good thing that when you come to a passage and then you start to learn, you're like, wow, I didn't know that. I don't understand this passage. It's not discouraging. It's an opportunity to say, okay, the Lord just showed me that I don't understand that. Or I don't pray like that. Well, therefore, that's, that's what I'm going to focus on. I'm not going to close my eyes and pretend I didn't hear that this is something that I need to grow in. I'm going to be like, wow, this is great. An opportunity to learn and to grow into something that I'm missing, that I thought was not even there. And now I know, wow, I don't know this. That's amazing. So it's been an encouragement. I hope you take it that way. I think there's a, there's a danger on the other side, though, that you don't want to eisegete and find things that aren't there because you're trying to look so deeply that you're seeing things that really aren't there. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's great to exegete and examine the scripture, but people dig so deep that they try to find things, you know, and, and sometimes, you know, things that aren't there. You know what I mean? I think sure. there's, a, there's just hedging on the other side. Right. We want to examine, we want to be thorough, but not so much that we look and see things that aren't. Does that make sense? Agreed. Yep. Um, so, so that your, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So here's a difficult question: Do we receive Christ in our hearts through faith, or is faith the result of being indwelt by Christ? I don't know if you have ever thought about that before. Do we receive Christ in our hearts because of faith? Or do we have faith because Christ is in our hearts? Which comes first? The second. That's right. It, it is because Christ has come into our hearts that we have faith. And then um, we believe. So this is the teaching of uh, Calvinism or what the Bible teaches on regeneration. Basically, regeneration precedes faith. I'm just going to write it down. It's really good to remember that. Regeneration. And regeneration is just another word for being born again, being a new creation, being baptized by the Holy Spirit. It means this is when you are saved. When you were dead in your sins and you are made alive, you are regenerated. And that's by the Holy Spirit. So regeneration... precedes faith. So, someone is dead in sins. They are regenerated, so now they are spiritually alive. And they have eyes to see, and therefore, they have faith. That's how it works. Someone who is like that, he doesn't have faith, because he's, he is dead. He needs to be made alive first. So let's see a couple verses, and you'll see why it's important. So please turn to 1 John 5, 1. 1 John 5, 1. I'm going to try to uh, uh, pick up the speed a, a little bit. So in 1 John 5, 1, we see that regeneration precedes faith. That is, regeneration comes first, and then faith is the result. It's not the opposite. It's not because I believe that God sees me. Oh, he believes in Christ. I'm going to give him new life. It's not like that. You get new life, and then you believe. So in 1 John 5, 1, it says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So if someone is presently having faith in Christ, that is because in the past, he has been born of God. You are born of God first, and then you believe. 
And then if you turn to, oh, you may just listen to this one. It's kind of a memorable sentence. In 1 Corinthians 12, 3, it says, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So what do we learn in Romans 10, 9 and 10? It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So you need to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord to be saved. You need to have faith that Jesus is Lord to be saved. But you can't do that except by the Holy Spirit. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So you must have the Holy Spirit before you can confess that Jesus is Lord. So that's what the Bible says. And so therefore, here in the prayer, Paul is not saying that I pray that you will become Christians. That Christ will dwell in your heart through faith. He's not praying for salvation. That's not his prayer. He's praying for sanctification. So he's saying, I pray that you may be strengthened in your heart by the Spirit, which by the way is mentioned right there before. And then it says, so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. So he's talking about not the, the fact that Christ comes when you have faith. It's talking about the fact that Christ is, is in your heart. Christ in us, the hope of glory, the Bible says. But now, he has to dwell in your heart. And the, ver the, the, the word dwell, it's a compound word, uh, and the etymology is basically talking about God being inside, like in a house where in, he inhabits, he dwells inside our heart. And so, what we are, what we are going to see is that he's praying for sanctification and he's saying that uh, Jesus is in us but that's not enough Jesus should be comfortably dwelling and inhabiting our inner being in holiness that's what he's saying so if the Spirit comes inside of us and he strengthens us then Christ is gonna dwell comfortably in holiness in our hearts and uh, I'm not going to attempt to say it better than uh, a quote I found in the commentary of MacArthur on Ephesians. It turns out he actually takes that thought from another book. So let's read this. In his booklet, My Heart, Christ's Home, Robert Munger pictures the Christian life as a house through which Jesus goes from room to room in the library, which is the mind. Jesus finds trash and all sorts of worthless things, which he proceeds to throw out and replace with his word. In the dining room of appetite, he finds many sinful desires listed on a worldly menu. In the place of such things as prestige, materialism, and lust, he puts humility, meekness, and love, and all the other virtues for which believers are to hunger and thirst. He goes through the living room of fellowship where he finds many worldly companions and activities through the workshop where only toys are being made into the closet where hidden sins are kept and so on through the entire house only when he had cleaned every room closet and corner of sin and foolishness could he settle down and be at home Jesus enters the house of our house at the moment he saves us but he cannot live there in comfort and satisfaction until it is cleansed of sin and filled with his will. It's beautiful, isn't it? So that's the prayer. The prayer is, the Spirit comes, strengthens us with his power, so that Christ will be at home in my inner person. What's that? I'll tell you afterwards. Yeah, it's in the MacArthur Ephesians commentary, and it's a little booklet. Uh, um, yes. Yeah. So that's the point, and then it says that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So he's obviously praying for us to understand more of the love of God. And again he says, I pray that you would have strength to comprehend. It's translated to be able to comprehend, the strength to comprehend. That means that I cannot understand spiritual things as 
the love of God and the depths of the love of God without being enabled and strengthened. Isn't that amazing? Like, you know, I'm weak. I cannot even understand that. I need to be guided by the Holy Spirit to understand the Word of God. It's what it says in Ephesians 1, uh, in 1 Corinthians 1, that the natural man does not understand the things of God. It is the Spirit who helps us to understand. So God is love. So being rooted and grounded in love means that we are being united in Christ and His uh, life and we are loving him and others with this divinely enabled love. <coughs> Please turn to Romans 5.5. 5. In Romans 5.5, 5, if someone wants to read the latter part of the verse, we will see the connection between the Spirit and the love. So that's uh, when it says, God's love has been poured in our hearts. Romans 5.5. 5. Someone wants to go here? And hope that's not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Right, so it's just that I have no innate ability to love. I, I need God's help to love. And uh, here, it says that the love of God has been poured in my heart by the Holy Spirit. So it's, it's very telling, isn't it, that the prayer starts with the strengthening. Qu'est-ce qui s'est passé? Okay. So it's, it's very telling, uh, isn't it, that um, he starts with the Holy Spirit because it is the Holy Spirit who pulls the love of God into our hearts so that then we can be uh, having Christ dwell in our hearts and then we can comprehend the love and even deepen our understanding of this love. Any questions or comments on this? Yeah, we can take, talk more at the end as well. Um, and you know, isn't it fascinating that he says that you would comprehend with all the saints you would comprehend with all the saints the love of God. So there are saints in heaven who know about the love of God in ways we can never know. But there are also people on this earth who know about the love of God. And he is really, isn't that interesting? He's giving us a challenge. He, he's praying for us to, to comprehend like the other people. So it really is, again, a motivation for us to desire, to learn, to love, uh, the Lord to love people to know more about his word and he's praying for that he is praying for that and then the, you know there are all kinds of beautiful ways that the comments about the dimensions of the love of God are, are explained uh, uh, by, by various uh, Bible teachers and they talk about the love of God that goes all the way to heaven and reaches down to the lowest parts of sin and that goes to all the seas around the globe to reach people we see the love of God in many passages of the Bible. We have John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his son. Uh, we have uh, also the passage in, in 1 John where it says, uh, See how great a love God has for us that we should be called his children. And then we saw in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, we saw that in love, God predestined us for adoption. So we have this amazing love of God that we are called his children and uh, when you take into account that we were dead in our sins children of wrath just like everybody else we had forefathered the devil we were pursuing his will we had no business for god we didn't care we didn't want him and uh, we are weak we just have nothing on our own it's not like god sees some people on the earth and he's like i choose these ones they are pretty spiritual it's none of us so it's really making the love of god even more magnificent when you compare it with, uh, with uh, what we, we were giving him. We were not loving him, we were enemies, we were hating the light, and then he loved us. So it is just, just incredible. And, and yet there, there is so much more, because he says, I want you to uh, comprehend more and more. And uh, that means that we have a lot more to experience. Um, perhaps often when we live the Christian life, we think that, or we unconsciously act as if God loves us only when we obey only when we think we're on top of uh, whatever uh, spiritual uh, status we, we would like to be. And, and no, God, is, God loves us. And, um, and that does not mean that we should just sit back and not pursue. 
having Christ dwelling in our hearts, but it does mean that the love of God is, is immeasurably great. And then moving to the end, we saw that the Spirit leads us to Christ, and now we see that Christ leads us to the Father. And we see the communion with God the Father. And you see the connections again with the, the purpose clauses. Strengthened by the Holy Spirit, so that Christ may dwell in my heart, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So, again, we see that uh, Christ in his love, he brings us to the Father uh, so that we can have communion, which is another way of saying be, being filled with all the fullness of God. And uh, we see this pattern where the Bible says that the Spirit, he glorifies Christ. He points to Christ. He leads us to Christ. And then in the same way, the Son, he, he glorifies the Father, the Bible says. He leads us to the Father. We're not reconciled with the Father. We have access to the Father. And uh, that's again this pattern here. And the feeling is uh, mentioned here, the feeling of all the fullness of God. But in the book of uh, Ephesians, we have that for every single member of the Trinity. So in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, it says, Be filled with the Spirit. In Ephesians 1.22, talking about Christ, it says, and he, that is God, put all things under his feet, that is Christ, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, that is Christ, who fills all in all. And Ephesians 4.10, it talks about Christ who ascended above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And then here we have the Father who uh, we are to pray, uh, we are going to be filled with all his fullness. So we really have this pattern where at the end of the day, you know, what he's asking is that we would be strengthened to act and to learn so that we are more in communion with God. And so when I'm discouraged for anything, I need to be in closer communion with God. Right? I'm discouraged for various things. What should I do? I should be in communion with God. I need to be strengthened by the Holy Spirit. I need to be strengthened to understand. I need to love more because the more I love, the more I will be reflecting God and I will be united with God and I'm going to have this communion that's going to be deeper. But at the end of the day, he's not emphasizing so much what we do to be in communion with God. He's asking God to make it happen. He's not saying, well, do X, Y, Z things, you'll be in communion with God. He's praying to God on his knees that he will have more communion. And when I was uh, preparing this, I, you know, there were several songs that, that I remember. There's this song that says, Nearer my God to Thee, nearer to Thee, still all my song shall be nearer to Thee. And then there's the other one, uh, the church is one foundation. And at some point it says this. Um, Let's see if I can if I can have it. It says, "The church, yet she, yet she on earth has union with God, the three in one, and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. Oh, happy ones and holy, Lord, give us grace that we." Like them, the meek and lowly, on high may dwell with thee. Brothers, all songs, right? Just desire to be in communion with God, in communion with the church. And I'll finish with the, the doxology. So the doxology is this, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Quick question for you. Should you and I worry about our limitations in prayer, such as lack of information we could fill in when we pray, humanly speaking? No. You know, one day I was praying for someone and I couldn't remember the name. 
Say, well, God, you know. You know that person. And we pray and we don't have all the details. Like, if I don't pray like that, maybe God. He can do far more of anything we can ask or think. Don't you know? So we should be really encouraged with that. It should give us rest that God is benevolent. See, when, when like my kids, they ask me something. If they don't say the exact same thing that you know uh, they need to ask, like I know what they need, I know what they mean, right? Because I have benevolence for them. And God is the same for us. And uh, to conclude, I'm going to read for us uh, Matthew Henry, who talks about the end, uh, the, to him. So he says this. Having thus described God, he ascribed glory to him. When we come to ask for grace from God, we ought to give glory to God. And to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus. In ascribing glory to God, we ascribe all excellencies and perfections to him, glory being the, the fulgency and result of them all. Observe the seat. Look at this one. Observe the seat of God's praise is in the church. That little rent of praise which God receives from the, this world is from the church. A sacred society constituted for the glory of God. Every particular member of which both Jew and Gentile concur in this work of praising God. The mediator of these praises is Jesus Christ. All God's gifts come from His to us through the hand of Christ. And all our praises pass from us to Him through the same hand. And God should and will be praised thus throughout all ages, world without end. For He will ever have a church to praise Him. And He will ever have His tribute of praise from His church. And man, amen, so be it, and so it will certainly be. And on that, we just say amen. May the Lord give us uh, more communion with him. Thanks for coming.